Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. But welcome today. Uh, if you're wondering who I am, my name is Jeremy. Uh, I help to lead at Commons, but I do most of that out of our Kensington Parish. And so if you and I haven't met in real life yet, uh, then hi, come say hi after. I'd love to get to know a bit of your story as well. But it's always great to be over on this side of town. However, I said I was here last week and I will be here next week because we are in this little mini series called Wealth right now. And so we have this morning and next week to continue building out this conversation together. But once again, I do want to say that it is Mother's Day and we recognize that mother is a word that carries so much weight for all of us in a lot of different ways. Good memories and difficult memories, healthy relationships and sometimes strength relationships and we do really want to let you know that there's room for all of that here and so for all of the women that have been a mother to us in a thousand different ways my mom my wife our family's birth mother who gifted us with our son we extend our gratitude and our thanks and our love today so thank you for it all now last week was all about coveting and desire. Today, I wanna look at the relationship between generosity and justice, and then next week, we'll wrap it up by talking about the pursuit of happiness. But let's take a few minutes here to look back at where we've been. Because last week, we jumped into a conversation about wealth by talking about desire. And this is actually really important for me. Because I think that if our imagination of wealth is centered on our bank accounts exclusively, then we really risk missing out on this larger conversation that the Bible wants to invite us into. Wealth in the biblical imagination is not just the freedom to acquire whatever you want. It's so much bigger than that. And it starts with the freedom from being driven by desire in the first place. And so last week, we talked about a couple big ideas, mimetic desire, planned obsolescence, and the Ten Commandments. But really, it was about recognizing that a lot of our dissatisfaction with the world is often manufactured. First, in this realization, that human desire itself is mimetic, which is just a fancy way of saying that it is imitative. We copy each other, we imitate each other, and in fact, according to René Girard, we don't even know how to desire things for ourselves. We just copy the desire we see in those around us. And this is something that advertisers know intimately well, it's why we have something called obsolescence, this idea that manufactured desire can turn your broken product into something that feels like a blessing. My phone is broken, but I get to buy a new one. How great is that? And so we talked about the roots of both planned and perceived obsolescence, uh, coming out of the Second World War, and all of that leading to this fascinating rabbinic reading of the Ten Commandments this recognition that Western audiences often perceive the Ten Commandments as a set of rules, but that many Jewish teachers imagine a much more nuanced dialogue, a relationship being expressed between God and humanity, 10 sayings inscribed in stone, but maybe more importantly, set in a story. And it's really fascinating to notice the disconnect between the first nine and the final 10th commandment. 
Because the first nine are all at least theoretically verifiable. Murdering, lying, stealing, these are all external actions. But the final one, the one about coveting, the one about wanting, the one about desiring what another has, I mean, what do you do with that as a rule? How do you stop human beings from wanting? And what some of the rabbis realized was that you just can't. And that being the case, they realized that maybe this was never meant to be a rule at all, maybe it was always a promise. Promise that if you can live this way, if you can keep God at the center, if you can treat each other with dignity, if you can value rest, if you can stop competing and cheating and striving to get ahead of someone else, then you might actually find yourself free from coveting. Not because you have everything, not because you got everything you wanted, but maybe because it's actually possible to exit the cycle of manufactured desire that often seems like it controls us. And if I talked about that last week, and if reading that final saying seems a bit strange to you when you hear it that way, some of that probably comes from the way that we're used to hearing it in English. Exodus 20, 17 usually sounds something like this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. But that shall is entirely an interpretive decision. In Hebrew, all the text says is that in the future you will not desire. And whether that sounds like a command to you or a promise to you, probably depends in part on your definition of wealth as much as anything else. Are you free to get what you want? Or are you being freed from being driven by want altogether? And so today, with that expanded definition of wealth that includes everything that enables us to exit cycles of wanting, we can now turn our attention to the relationship between generosity and justice. But first, let's pray. Generous God, We know that everything we have comes from you. But at times we forget this, we lose sight of this, sometimes we even actively work to ignore this. Yet we come back to you today because in our heart we trust that you are the source of all that is good in our world. That you are the one that makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. And so as we speak about wealth and generosity and justice today, may we do that from a posture of deep gratitude. From the reminder that all that you have blessed us with, even in our struggle, is good. That we are blessed and graced and loved and we thank you. And so where we have been selfish, we ask for forgiveness. Where we have been myopic, we ask for perspective. Where we have perhaps looked too intently at our own bull, we ask that you would help us see the need in those near us. Help us to be generous as you are generous. And in that, to experience something of true wealth. In the strong name, of the risen Christ we pray, amen. Okay, today, 
There's generosity and justice, but I want to talk about idle moments, backstories, some brain science, and the real opportunities to change the world. But I want to start with a parable, and I know that we just talked about parables in the spring. If you missed any of the Parables of Grace series, then please check them out online. Uh, Parables are always some of my favorite passages to listen to, and Scott did a brilliant job with them. And by the way, we have a YouTube channel that collects all of our content from both of our parishes, but there is a podcast feed that is just for Inglewood. And so you can find the link at commons.church slash watch. There's a link there. You can subscribe to the teaching that comes out of this side of town. But this is not one of those parables. In fact, this parable is one of what we sometimes call the parables of the kingdom. And Jesus will often tell stories about the kingdom of God. And that is a subversive way for Jesus to contrast the existing kingdoms of the world with the divine imagination for the world. And one of the things that we always have to keep in the back of our minds when we hear Jesus speak of a kingdom of God is that this is very political language with significant implications. Uh, Remember that most of Jesus' audience for most of his teaching, these are Jewish people that made up his closest friends and they were part of a marginalized group that had been colonized by the Roman Empire. And so to speak of kingdom was about using the language of the empire against the empire. It was meant to say that the imagination of God ran counter to the experience of kingdom that people were having in the world. In fact, there's almost nothing in the kingdom parables that looks anything like a kingdom that we've ever seen, and that's kind of the point. And so when Jesus tells a kingdom parable about wealth and generosity and justice, then this is one that grabs my attention here. So we're gonna turn to Matthew 20, right at the start in verse one where Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, a denarius is a Roman term, it's a Roman currency. It was about a quarter of a shekel, which was the Jewish currency at the time. And this story hangs on the premise that one denarius is a fair wage for one day's work. But the story continues. At about nine in the morning, he went out again and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you go also and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went. Now, before we go on, there's two interesting things here. First, uh, your Bible may read something like this. He went out and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Uh, The NIV has changed that to something like standing in the marketplace doing nothing. That's because the Greek word that Jesus uses here, argus, has two meanings. The first is having nothing to do. The second is refusing to do anything. And that's kind of tough because that kind of drastically changes the story a bit, doesn't it? Are these people victims of an economy that has not provided employment for them? Or are they the culprits of the story who refuse to do any work? 
And while some older translations have gone with idle or lazy at times, most scholarship today would argue that that is actually a distortion of the story. And that what you need is a reason to jump to the secondary meaning of a word rather than simply take it at face value, being given nothing to do. The point being, at least at this point in the story, this is not about lazy people. This is not about idle persons. This is a story about the dignity of work and the inequitable distribution of those opportunities. And I think it's worth noticing here that in a story about the kingdom of God, Jesus is very comfortable talking about work. Last week I said that you are not your work. You are not what you create. Your value is not tied to your economic output. That's true, but work and contribution and creativity, these all have a place in God's imagination for you. And if your concept of heaven is you lounging on a cloud and sipping margaritas all day, you might be in for a surprise at some point. Because work is holy. And your contribution to the world that surrounds you is sacred. But notice here also, the landowner's promise. I will pay you whatever is right. Now, I'm gonna spoil the ending here. This does not give you permission to talk about Avengers yet. Three of us still haven't seen it. Rachel and I went to see it last night. Fantastic, but Jesus told this story about 2,000 years ago, so the statute of limitations on spoilers has passed on this one. Don't throw anything at me, but everyone here is going to get paid the same amount. And you may have guessed that already, you may have heard the story already, but notice here that Jesus doesn't spoil it yet. A denarius is a day's wage, we've agreed to that already, now he promises a fair wage. And what that does is it keeps the tension in the story. I think sometimes, because we've heard some of Jesus' parables before, it can be really hard to hear them again. It's important to remember that Jesus' ending to this story is in no way obvious to his audience. It was surprising and it was unexpected and it challenges our assumptions about what's fair and that's the point of it. Jesus is pushing against our inherent imagination of justice in order to lead us to something better and sometimes, especially when we think we know the story, We need to work really hard to be surprised all over again. Jesus is letting us do that. But now that I've already spilled the tea, let's keep reading. He went out again about noon and again about three in the afternoon and he did the same thing. At about five in the afternoon, he went out once again and found others still standing around. And he asked them, why have you been here standing all day doing nothing? Remember that conversation about argus? Well, here Jesus uses a new term. It's the term histemi, which means standing in place. And this is actually part of why we think that lazy or idle is probably the wrong translation here. Because here, even at five in the afternoon, when the landowner finally speaks to this final group of people, the connotation is actually precisely the opposite of them being lazy. He says, why are you still standing put at attention as if to say, are you possibly still here hoping that someone will hire you today? You see, 
This group who's here in the evening at 5 p.m. at the end of the day, they're far from lazy, they are desperate. They've been waiting all day. These are probably the weakest workers, uh, probably the least skilled laborers. These are the ones with the lowest chances of ever actually getting gainful employment and yet they are still here, hopeful, eager perhaps for just a chance to work. And notice, instead of chastising them, the landowner actually says something perhaps more like this, why have you been here standing all day given nothing to do? because no one has hired us, they answered. And so he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And do you see how dramatically some of our basic assumptions can fundamentally alter the tone of a story like this? Uh, Is this a story about lazy people who don't wanna work? Or is this a story about those who have not been given the opportunities that some of us seem to take for granted? Those are two very different stories. And some of this is a product of translation. Uh, Anytime we move from one language to another, we are going to have interpretive choices to make. We just can't avoid that. But really, I think, what it often comes down to is our experience of the world. There was a book that came out earlier this year by an author called Dan Megan, It was titled, America the Fair, Using Brain Science to Create a More Just Nation. And in it, Megan, who is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Guelph, yay Canada, uh, writes about the very different definitions of fair that float throughout our popular consciousness. And he tells a couple stories. Uh, One is about a very well-known phenomena tested by something called the ultimatum game. Uh, It works like this, you come in and you are told that there has been $100 allocated for the study. And the first unnamed participant has been given the chance to allocate a portion of those funds for themselves and a portion for you. And you can either accept the allocation as suggested and walk away with the money allocated to you, or You can reject the allocation and the test is over and no one gets anything. And what researchers invariably find is that the farther the allocation gets from the expected 50-50 split, the more frequently you will just simply reject all of it and leave with nothing. Now, on one hand, I think we kind of get that, right? It's not fair, why should this other person get more than me? But at the same time, even if the split was 90-10, why wouldn't you just take the money and leave? You don't know this other person. You're never gonna meet them. Just take your free money and buy yourself an ice cream cone while you pout about how unfair the world is. I mean, it's free money, right? And yet somehow that concept of fair is so deeply embedded in us somewhere, we will actually work against our own self-interest to defend it. Uh, Megan gives another example this time from two researchers, Sarah Brosnan of Georgia State University, Franz DeWall of Emory University, and they demonstrated that monkeys who had been trained to give a human a token in exchange for a piece of cucumber would start refusing to participate when they saw a mother monkey receiving a grape for doing the same amount of work. 
First of all, proving conclusively that grapes are obviously better than cucumbers, but also that monkeys are really jealous. In fact, they even showed that the monkeys would get so upset when grapes were given to other monkeys who hadn't done any work that they would throw the formerly exciting cucumber back at the researcher in disgust. So this is like somewhere deep inside us, this sense of fairness based on equal results. And the theory goes that this rejection of what is seen as unfair has a purpose of reinforcing or enforcing social norms about the allocation of resources within a tribal group. The acceptance of an unfair offer all but guarantees your future mistreatment Whereas a forceful rejection sends a clear message to the group, don't take advantage of me. Don't help yourself to more than you deserve. And so this response is somewhere hardwired into us by evolution. This conviction that life is a zero sum game and there's only so much to go around. And yet, all of that is premised off the untested assumption that everyone has the same backstory and that everyone comes to the story from the same story. I mean, a 50-50 split in the ultimatum game inherently feels fair to all of us. But would you feel differently if you played that game and you received a 90-10 split, but then you were told that the allocator had a sick child and limited resources and they hadn't had anything to eat yet today? Of course you would. Because you're human and you care and you want to see others looked after. In fact, it's actually that same instinct for fairness that leads you to demand 50-50 that's part of the same instinct that leads you to care for your neighbor when you know they're in need. The difference is simply how much of the backstory we allow ourselves to know. And this is why Jesus' story here is so utterly compelling for me. Because at times, it almost feels like a bit of a Rorschach test. Are these people here waiting all day because they're lazy? Or are they here because they've been marginalized, they lack opportunity, they're desperate for a chance to work? What's the story that we choose to read between the lines? What's the story we choose to assume behind what we're told? And what do those assumptions do to our conception about what's fair in the end of the story? Now, when evening came, The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the worker and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Remember, that's a full day's wage. And so seeing this, those who were hired first get kind of excited. This guy is giving out day's wages for hours worked. Just imagine what he's gonna give us. And so when those who were hired first came, they expected to receive more. And yet, each of them also received a denarius as well. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us. And notice here the language, that this is a hint that this isn't just about the money, right? And it never is. 
It's about how we compare ourselves to each other, how we rank ourselves against each other, how we perceive our value in comparison to one another. You have made them equal to us, us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Now, I think when we read this, sometimes we have a tendency to hear it with a bit of an edge. Um, There was this old skit on Letterman where he would pull strangers in off the street and he would interview them. And during that interview, he would just constantly call them chief or buddy or pal until they would finally stop him and tell them their real name. That's not happening here. This friend is an actual genuine response. And part of what you have to understand is that the word here is heteros, which is a little different from the really familiar term philos in Greek. And that's part of why we read it as genuine. The boss is not pretending to be best friends here. He doesn't claim to be a philos with this worker. He says heteros. And this one's kind of tough because we don't really have a good word for this in English. Um, In English, we sort of jump from acquaintance to friend without too many categories in between. But in Greek, a hataros is someone that you appreciate, uh, someone that you care about, someone that you have a shared interest in, but not necessarily someone you have a close personal connection to. And so what happens is that some lexicons will translate this as comrade or companion. The problem is we don't really talk that way in real English. The point being here, the boss is not being condescending. He's actually being compassionate. This is a real legitimate expression of care that's appropriate to the context of two people who have just met each other. He's not pretending they are BFFs but he's also not interacting simply as a function of their economic engagement. Uh, This is not employer-employee language. This is a human-to-human conversation, and that makes a big difference in how we hear it. Because he says, friend, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? I have been very fair to you, so take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last. And don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, or are you envious because I am generous? And this is a really fascinating conclusion to a really great story for at least a couple reasons. First, there's this profound idea here that generosity begets envy when we see each other as competition. And I'm fascinated by this because I know all about this. Uh, Something good happens to someone else. Something unexpectedly falls into a friend's lap and you're excited for them, you're happy for them, but you're also a little bit annoyed by that, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, why did they get that? Why them, why not me? This is a product of that same evolutionary response that tells us everything is a zero-sum game. I don't know how, I don't know why, I couldn't explain it to you rationally if you asked me to, but I feel like if you get something for free, that means there's somehow less out there for me. 
This is embarrassing, but I remember the first time that Rachel and I were on the list waiting to adopt our son, and it seemed at that time like everyone was getting pregnant. I know people get pregnant all the time, but it feels magnified when you're waiting for something like that. And these were our friends, and we were deeply happy for them. We really were, but there was also this sense that it just wasn't really fair. I mean, of course, someone else's pregnancy has less than zero to do with our adoption. I mean, unless you're going to give us your child, but these things aren't rational at all. They're based in a very primitive, competitive part of our brain. And I want to suggest that unhindered, absolute joy for another is actually really good for your soul, and sometimes you need to practice it because it doesn't always come naturally. But even more fascinating, is this curious translation choice that we've made again here. Because the NIV ends the story on the generosity of the landowner. And certainly, generosity is a big part of the story, so I'm not gonna argue that at all, but the most straightforward translation of the word agathos that Jesus uses here is actually simply good. Friend, Are you envious because I am good? And again, I want to suggest that what we read here depends at least in part on what we bring with us to the story. Because if this story is just about lazy workers who lounge around all day and then receive more than they deserve, then sure, this is about surprising generosity that's unwarranted. But if this story has a backstory, if this story is about providing equal opportunity to those who don't have it, if this story is about wealth being used to create just access to work, if this is a story about a God who values everyone as friend, regardless of their economic output, then generosity is fine, but maybe actually good is better. And good is where this parable really becomes a powerful image of kingdom for me. Because what if this was never about lazy workers who receive more than they deserve? What if this was always about an imagination of wealth that saw provision and access and opportunity as the primary metrics for success in the community of God? See, people will gladly say things like, Jesus talks about money more than anything else. And then they'll take a story like this that's about money and say, well, it isn't really about money. And I'm not so sure. Don't get me wrong. This is a story about the kingdom of God. It's about salvation. It's about being freely invited into the heart of God. But it's also about what happens to us when we respond to that invitation. It's about how that invitation changes our priorities. It's about how our imagination of what's fair is altered. It's about how our perception of success is irrevocably transformed by God's goodness and how our experience of our wealth can begin to look progressively more like God's wealth. You see, I think this is a story about how we begin to see our choices and our purchases, our transactions, our employment, and our hiring, not simply as what benefits us, 
but as resources that are at our disposal to extend justice and opportunity to those who've not been given what we have been given. See, I think this is a parable about not seeing each other as competition all the time. I think it's a parable about trusting that there's always a story behind the story, even when you don't know it. I think it's a parable that calls us to recognize the ways in which God looked to us and then through us to find the best in us and then nurture it. Because this is a story that invites us to know ourselves as welcomed at the very last minute and then to actually live as if we've been shaped by that story. It's a story that invites us to see our wealth, whatever it is that we've been given, the way that God sees God's wealth as opportunity to redirect excess into access for those who need it. See, this is a story that is about your invitation into God's kingdom, but it's also about the invitation of God's kingdom into you. All so that whatever wealth you have, money, resources, talent, time, passion, energy, compassion, warmth, a shoulder to cry on, that all of it might become more than yours to hold on to and protect but instead that it might become part of a larger story where generosity becomes the servant of a more just world. May you live and give and shop and hire and earn and invest in the world that God imagines for all of us. Let's pray. God, for all the ways that you have been always telling us that everything we have is gift. For all the ways that you have always been telling us that all we have is responsibility. For all the ways that you have always been telling us that everything we have been given is in service of an imagination of the world that invites and welcomes and provides access for all. Might that story begin to sink somewhere deep inside of us so that it shapes not only our conception of salvation in your grace, but also our conception of everything that is. Our time and our resources, our passion, our excitement, our empathy, our compassion, our ability to take whatever excess we have, resources, emotion, passion, and to turn that into access for those who need it. Might we trust that there is always a story behind the story, and that as we open ourselves up to learn and hear to believe the way that you looked through our story to find the real us, and that as we do that for those near us, we will be compelled to participate in a more generous and just world. May your kingdom, your imagination for us, be true in our lives. In the strong name of the risen Christ we pray.